I think it's safe to say that everyone wants to be happy. In fact, we order our lives for the pursuit of our own happiness. We give ourselves to these pursuits in order to maximize the amount of happiness that we can achieve in life. Through these pursuits of happiness, we, we give ourselves and our time and our energy, our money and our efforts in order to grow and gain more happiness. These pursuits of happiness are entirely subjective. They vary from person to person. What makes one happy doesn't necessarily make your neighbor happy. What makes you happy doesn't make perhaps me happy. Perhaps, for example, one might be happy with a new job. I just really be really excited this morning if they got a new job. Or, or someone may just really be very happy and satisfied if they got a new dog. It really just varies from person to person. What, what really gives us happiness? We run after the things, though, that we believe will maximize our happiness in life. It's what we pursue. It's what we, we live for, these things that will make us happy. It's the pursuit of happiness that, that drives much of the American society and culture and business world. It's the pursuit of having more so that we can be more happy. Friend, I wonder today, as we gather here, as we think about happiness, what makes you happy? What is it that makes you happy this morning? Perhaps it's a really short sermon. Maybe that will make you really happy this morning, is to hear a short sermon. But seriously, ponder for me, in your mind, what is it that makes you happy? That satisfies your soul, that that really gets you up and going in the morning? Perhaps what would make you happy today would be to win the lottery. You win that lottery and you have all this money and, and boy, you'd really be happy. Your debts would be paid and boy, you could live and do and whatever you wanted. Perhaps for you this morning, happiness would be found in retirement. If you could retire today, today would, you could turn in your letter of retirement tomorrow and be done and you could try, that would make you happy. Or perhaps it would be that your kids would get their lives straightened out. And you wouldn't have to parent them in your 60s and 70s anymore. You, you'd just be happy to, you know, kind of just be that parent that doesn't have to continue to parent their kids when they're 70 years old. Maybe that's what would encourage you and make you happy today. Or maybe perhaps you would be happy if you could just achieve all the goals you've ever had in your life. That's what would satisfy you and make you happy. What makes you happy And how do you get happy? How do you pursue happiness? That's what we're going to think about in our time this morning. Think about happiness and how one achieves happiness. I invite you to turn this morning to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible there provided in the pew. It's page 448 in that Black Pew Bible. So if you have a Black Pew Bible and you're not familiar where the psalm is, you just turn to the middle of the Bible and you are close. Um, If you're not accustomed to looking at God's Word, the large numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are verse numbers. So we're in chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to consider this whole psalm today uh, in our time together. Psalm 1. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat, excuse me, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This morning we're going to begin a four-Sunday series over the next few weeks. We're going to take a break from Mark's Gospel and consider uh, four different psalms. And really over the next couple years, we're going to pepper in throughout our time together different psalms to hopefully encourage us. The psalms are said by some to be the songbook of the church. Uh, They're what gives our emotional highs and lows. Calvin called the book of the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. In the Psalms, you can find uh, the mountains and you can find the valleys. You can find the, the happiness, the joy, and you can find the mourning and the sorrow and the laments. In the Psalms, you can find way, ways to live after God's own glory, and you can find warnings against God's judgment that is coming against those who do not turn from sin. But what is a psalm? Well, if you're not familiar with the Psalms, and maybe this is not uh, uh, normal territory for you, uh, the Psalms are, are, are basically poetry, uh, songs, if you will, uh, poems that were oftentimes in the, in the nation of Israel were used uh, in their worship services, in their temple worship, and, and would have been put to music. And so a Psalm is really just a poem, and so it's a nice refreshing break from, from what we've been doing in narrative passages in Mark to, to consider some poetry. Poetry helps to communicate really the deep emotional states of man. It helps communicate better joy. It helps to communicate better sorrow and suffering and, and tears. You can really communicate well through poetry. And my hope and encouragement is we consider just really four different psalms and different flavors, if you will, of the Christian life. Different portions and different ways. And that's where we're going to take our time this morning. Uh, to summarize this psalm in a word or in a sentence would be this. A holy life leads to a happy life. A holy life leads to a happy life. That, that would be the sum of this psalm. If we were to summarize in just, just a short statement, a Holy life leads to a happy life. In other words, genuine happiness is the result of a life of holiness. How does one be happy? It is through the pursuit of holiness. This we're going to consider today in our time together. How holiness leads to happiness in our lives. Now, if you're reading your Bible and you just kind of, kind of alarms have gone off in your mind already this morning. You're thinking, okay, I heard you read. I'm looking at my Bible. I'm looking at my ESV here. And I don't see the word happy anywhere in here. What are you talking about? And you see that word blessed here this morning. Many translations wrestle with whether or not to translate that as happy or to translate that as blessed. So if you have a Holman Christian Bible this morning, uh, it, it translated it happy. Happy 
is the man. Well, which is it? Is it blessed or happy? Well, I think it's both. And, uh, and the reason why many of the modern translations have translated it as happy is because it ha- better conveys what blessedness really means. It helps to interpret for you, if you will, that old word, blessed, right? So if you've been around church life for a while, or, or maybe you're new to church, you probably, though, have heard that word, blessed. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, right? You've heard that word before. Uh, it's a churchy kind of word. But happy better communicates the, the meaning of the word or the goal of the word. That is, the blessed life is the happy life. Or the happy life is genuinely the blessed life. In other words, one is truly happy when they have been blessed by God. Okay? So when you recognize that you've been blessed by God, then you're happy. You're satisfied. You're you're joyful, other words. But not only does it help communicate in English, it's how the Bible uses the word too. So, for example, in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 10.8, you don't have to turn there. In 1 Kings 10.8, the queen of Sheba goes to Solomon and kind of just like is jaw dropped in awe of all that Solomon has. Solomon was a rich man. Uh, he spent like about $50,000 a day just to feed his, his people, like the people in his court. So this to give you a little picture of how much stuff he had. He was a blessed man. He was very blessed by God. And when the queen of Sheba came, this is what she said. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who content, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. That word happy is the same word here, blessed. In the sense that happiness, they're happy because they have received blessings from God. They're recipients of blessings. And so we see that it's not wrong, and I think it would be better in our minds to think about happiness instead of blessedness. So we're going to use the word happy. You can use the word blessed. It doesn't really matter. It means the same thing. But For our time together today, we're going to think about happiness. How does one pursue happiness? And the psalmist in this psalm seeks to convince us that true happiness is found in the pursuit of holiness. This is what he's trying to argue for, if you will. This is what he's trying to show us, is that in the Christian life, in our lives, in our pursuit after God, true happiness is when we pursue holiness. He does this by contrasting the life of a holy person and the life of an unholy person. He he spends his time contrasting the way of righteousness and the way of wickedness. So that's what we're going to consider together today. He's thinking about this contrast. We're going to consider three contrasts. So if you take notes and you're just like, what's the outline, if you will? Well, here's the outline. First, contrasting love. Second, we'll consider contrasting fruit. Third and finally, contrasting end contrasting love contrasting fruit and contrasting end and the point is that a holy life leads to a happy life let's look first at contrasting love he begins by contrasting the two loves of these two people these these two men you've got one man who is called a blessed man and then you have an unnamed man a a wicked man And what he does is he contrasts the love that these two have. First, the wicked have a sustained love for wickedness. This is what he's saying. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That is, these wicked men have a love for wickedness. 
So the ESV translates that, walk in the counsel. Uh, perhaps a better understanding of that might be, follow the advice of the wicked. So in the sense that the psalmist is saying a happy man is one who does not follow the advice of wicked people. Who do not follow the, the counsel, the, 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 the world view of wickedness, but rather pursues another world view, a, a godly world view. It's one who doesn't walk, doesn't, doesn't have this pattern of life in which he lives out in the counsel of the wicked. Secondly, notice he says, nor stands in the way of sinners. Does it stand in the way of sinners? Or, or he doesn't take the path of sinners. So this, this blessed man is one who avoids the path of sinners. He sees that, that the wicked have this love for wickedness. He sees it on their road and he chooses not to take that road. He says, no, I'm not going to go down that road. I know that road leads to death, and I won't go down it. Oftentimes in wisdom literature, like this psalm and in the book of Proverbs, uh, the the author will communicate wickedness as a path or or righteousness as a path. That is, that we have, if you will, two ways to live. We have the, the way of righteousness, the road, like literally you could take the path of righteousness, or you could take the path of wickedness. You really don't have a middle road. There, you know, we, we try to play a middle road. We often, we, we often think there's a middle road. We often drive thinking that we can do both. But, but the reality is the Bible says that there's only two roads. You, you're either on the road of righteousness or you're on the road of wickedness. It's, it's really that clear. It's really that black and white. Proverbs says, do not set foot on the path of the wicked. Do not proceed in the way of the evil ones. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn away from it and pass it by. I love that. That's Psalm 414. Don't, don't, don't even go, don't, don't even flirt with it. Don't, don't, don't even flirt with it. Don't, don't even step your feet on it. Don't even think about it. Don't even go that way, he says. And that's what the psalmist here is calling our attention to. That, that the truly happy one is the one who recognizes that that is poisonous. Will not go that way, as we'll see in a moment, because he knows where that way leads. Thirdly, there in verse 1, he says, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That is, he doesn't join the group of mockers. A scoffer would have been a mocker, one who would have mocked the divine things. Consider for a moment Job and his friends. That, that, that was kind of what was going on with them. They, they, they became, at the beginning, were really good buddies. They were really good friends. They were giving him some support and encouragement. You know, sorry, man, this happened to you. This is really bad. I know it's tough. You know, they were really weeping for him. I mean, he lost his entire family, lost everything he had. And they, they were weeping. But, but what happened is, is they, they slowly and subtly began to take the position of mockers. They began to mock God and mock God's purposes and plans for Job's life. And so the truly happy one is one who does not sit there in that seat. That is, doesn't take the the position, doesn't join in, doesn't say this is the way of life that I'm going to live. Again, we we don't see this as like a dabbling in. This should be very clear here. Uh, This isn't a dabbling in sin. This is a way of life. Wickedness is a way of life, not just merely a passing attitude or behavior. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 26, I do not sit with worthless or associate with hypocrites. I hate a crowd of evildoers, and I do not sit with the wicked. In the sense that 
The, the truly happy one is one who's not hanging out with those that are purposefully undermining God and his word. Now to be clear, the psalmist is not saying that to avoid all sinful people. Because that would be impossible. Secondly, that would not be very helpful in our evangelistic efforts if we, never, if we didn't have any non-Christian friends or sinful friends. And also we recognize that we are sinners and need of a savior. So to be clear here, this is one who, to be clear, this doesn't mean that we are not to associate with wicked people, but we must abhor the life of wickedness, their pattern of living. So again, this is not to say we don't have associations with sinful people, non-Christians, but it is to say that we recognize we are not eyes glassed over like in awe and wonder of their lives we recognize their life ends in destruction and death. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts or ruins good morals. In the sense that when you are constantly hanging out with non-Christians and being influenced by them, then we have a problem. That's where the problem lies, is, is in the influence of wickedness on our lives. And so the question begs, how then is wickedness influencing my life? How do I see wickedness influencing me? Again, this isn't, I'm going to teach you some sort of like escapism, you know, you sort of shut the door, get away from the world, you know, turn off the TV, don't let the, the crazy stuff come into your home, you know, all that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying how do you guard your life from the way of wickedness. First, you've got to recognize the wicked way. If you can't tell the difference between a non-Christian worldview and a Christian worldview, well, friend, come and see me. I will help you. You need to see the difference between the world and the way the world thinks about problems, the way the world thinks about suffering, the way the world thinks about, uh, about money or anything, about life. Brothers and sisters, we must see that there is a contrast between the world and what the Bible offers up as the way of righteousness. We cannot be confused and say that they are one in the same or some sort of gray middle way. We must see there is a, a stark contrast between what we see in verse 1 and what we see now in verse 2. That is, the righteous person pursues love for God's word. The contrasting love is that sinners love sin and Christians love God and His Word. That's the contrast. There, there's this love for God's Word. Look with me in verse 2. He says, But his delight, that is the blessed man, the happy man's delight, is the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Notice first that his delight is in God's law or instruction. Now, I mean, I mean as I studied this this week, I just wondered, you know, how many times do I get up and get excited about God's word. And particularly the focus here is God's law. I mean, when's the last time you heard someone say, you know, I really love rules. I really love law. I mean, I sit and I read law all the time, and it's so good. Uh, I love rules, and I love, I love reading them and thinking about them. Is that what the psalmist is saying? No. Uh, and if you, in many of your translations, it may say, uh, uh, delight in the, in the instruction of the Lord. And that, that, the sense is, is more instruction. That is, the law, yes, the Torah, that is the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 
the first five books. But, but in there, there's more than law in there. There's more than just the Ten Commandments. So if you hear the word law this morning, you think, oh, Ten Commandments, that's what I'm thinking about. That's what I'm posting up all over my wall. No, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying the instruction of the Lord. That is God's Word revealed to us. In His Word, God reveals His will for our lives. And so the, 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 this happy man that we're told about, his delight, his joy, his satisfaction, his, his, his love is God's Word. He loves the Word of God. And what we see, though, is that love for God's Word precedes the ability to study God's Word. Notice the way he contrasts it. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So what we want to do, we want to jump there and say, oh man, i got to meditate on God's Word. i got to read God's Word, right? I mean, if you've been in church like a day, you, someone tells you you have to read God's Word. Like, that's essential. That's 101, right? You just, you're always inundated. you got to read the Bible, got to read your Bible, got to read your Bible. If you're not even a Christian, you, you think that you have to read your Bible, right? Well, the problem is, is what motivates us to read our Bible is some legalistic standard rather than genuine love. And the reason why you fail, and I fail, at reading the Bible regularly is because my love, or your love, for God's Word has diminished. That is, the pursuit of study begins with love for God's Word. He delights in the law. He, he delights in it. He, he is joyful about it. He's excited about it. He's not drudging. He's like, oh man, i got to read my Bible again this morning? I gotta, I gotta, uh, I gotta read again. Here I am again, Lord. No, he has joy. He has excitement. He has satisfaction. He knows what what is contained therein. He knows when he opens it, he will hear a word from the eternal throne of God for his own life and heart. He knows it, and he's excited about it. He he finds delight and joy, not drudgery. You might ask, how how do you love God's word? I think first, you've got to pray. So this morning, if you're like, you know, I don't feel much love for the Bible. Pray. God, give me a love for your word. Cry out to him, God, my, my love. I used to read. I used to love. I used to want. But now I, I see it's, it's, it's lacking. And God, give me that love back for your word. Secondly, you have to recognize that it's a means of grace. That is, that studying God's Word isn't an end of in itself. As if you just read the Bible and, and, and check off some sort of arbitrary list. You know, oh, I read my Bible today. God must love me. It's just not true. God imparts grace through His Word. He imparts faith through His Word. You can't live without it. That's why Jesus calls it the bread of life. It literally is bread for your soul. You can't live without it. And so start with prayer. Secondly, though, you have to recognize that it is a means of grace. That faith comes by hearing. That you have to hear God in order to have faith in God. As the psalmist tells us in Psalm 119, I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Brothers and sisters, begins by laying down the idol of self, the idol of possessions, 
When we can truly come to a point in our lives that we can say that God's word is greater than all the riches in the world. To really come to a position to say that if I lost all things in life and I still had God's word, I would be delighted. I would be satisfied. We could say as David says in Psalm 19, that it is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. That it is sweetness to the mouth. That it's not bitterness, but it's sweet. Do you delight in God's word? Do you love God's word? I pray that you would grow in that. Secondly, he says that the righteous pursue love of God's word in his meditation. He said that that he meditates on his law day and night. (laughs) A, A student of the word. A happy man is a student of God's word. A happy woman is a student of God's word. Just one thing very clearly here. He does not say here that you got to know everything about the Bible. He doesn't say you've got to have a PhD in Bible in order to be happy. He says one who meditates on God's word. One who studies God's word. Now, meditation is used in our culture in various ways, and we might be thinking, well, you know, what kind of meditation does he have in mind here? Well, he doesn't have in mind sort of Eastern religion meditation, you know, smoke and all that crazy incense and everything. That's not what's going you know, sort of finding your Zen place. That, that's not what he's talking about here in meditation. Meditation rather uh, literally here is a groaning or, or a voicing of God's word. It's a, it's a groaning after God's word. It's a, it's a hunger for the word of God that cannot be satisfied by a passing bite. Make sense? It, it, it's not that you just come and by and say, Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinner. Boom, I'm good for the day. I've got my food. No, it's one who studies. One who sits down and feasts on God's word. Like just eats and eats and eats. He says he does it day and night. Again, it it doesn't mean that you have to go into some sort of ritualistic sense of like, okay, when you get up in the morning, you read your Bible, and then when you go to bed at night, you read your Bible. That's not what he's trying to communicate here. What he's communicating, that is, it encompasses all parts of your life. God's Word isn't just 15 minutes a day. It rather is 24 hours a day. It's the whole day. Not in a sense you're reading your Bible all day, but that God's Word is stirring in your soul all day long. This is why memorization is a helpful tool in meditation. When you memorize God's Word, it it just kind of stirs in your mind all day long. The Spirit brings it up and reminds you of the truth and then you think about it and you think about its implication think about its application for your life and disturbs you all day long in meditation on God's word brothers and sisters we must see that holiness begins with study of God's word you cannot manufacture holiness apart from God's word it is impossible Holiness begins with a study for God's Word. And our study for God's Word leads to obedience. So we don't just read God's Word for knowledge. We don't just read it to you know, answer all the questions in Sunday school or, or impress all of our friends with our Bible knowledge. We do it so that it will lead to holiness or obedience of God's Word. That's why we do it. That's why we study so that we would obey God in His Word. You grow in that. Calvin wrote, God is only rightly served when His law is rightly obeyed. 
God is only rightly served when he is rightly obeyed. When we rightly obey God and his word, then he is served. Then he is honored and glorified. Much of what the psalmist is saying here is very similar to what Joshua, Joshua wrote in Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So notice here that meditation on God's word leads to prosperity and leads to success. We're going to talk more about prosperity in a moment. But, but notice that it's a meditation, a day and night, a, a continual thinking. Do not depart from your mouth. He didn't say your mind, your heart. He says your mouth. That is what's coming out of your mouth is Bible. What comes out is Bible. What informs your, your thinking is Bible. What, what you're informing others with is Bible. And you see that you begin to bleed the Bible as Spurgeon once wrote. This is what you and I do. We spend time regularly in God's Word. And so the question is, how do you meditate on God's Word? I just want to leave you with that tool here this morning. How do you meditate on God's Word? First, it begins with a plan. I will guarantee you this, if you do not have a Bible reading plan, I will probably suspect that 9 out of 10 probably fail. If you don't have a plan, if you just sort of whimsically go about it, just sort of say, you know, I think today I'm going to read a psalm, or today, uh, tomorrow I'm going to do it. I tell you, in about a week, if you even make it that far, you will fail. you got to have a plan. You may think, well, where do I get a plan from? Well, you can go online, lots of plans. Google Bible reading plan, you'll find probably a million of them. You, uh, if you have a good study Bible, in the back of your study Bible, or even back of the Bible you have, it, there might be a reading plan there. Follow a plan. Find a plan and stick to the plan. Find a place and a time. Say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to set aside five minutes. And I just want to encourage you, if you are not reading the Bible right now and you're a Christian, I do not want to beat you over the head. God loves you still. God cares for you. He died for you. He died for that sin. But here's the, here's the reality. You've got you to say, you know what? I've got to make time in my life to read your word. And it begins that simply. Saying, I'm going to set aside time to read. And so set that time aside. And if you're not doing anything right now, I just want to encourage you, you know, 15 minutes at the most. I mean, most. Maybe you can start as small as five minutes. But just, again, the point is, is you've got to have a plan. You've got to start. You've got to do it daily. Again, you're thinking you can just do it, oh, I'm just going to do it once a week. That's not enough. you got to do it daily. you gotta, you got to see that this is an important part of my life. Look, I'm a Southern Baptist. I don't miss many meals. And I know you don't either. So why do you miss the meal at God's Word? We have to go daily and feed from God's Word. Secondly, you have to read. <laughs> I know that seems silly, but you got to actually read it. Right? You know, actually open it up and actually read what your plan is encouraging you to read. Uh, and I think thirdly, this is just sort of an encouragement that's helped, my, helped me, is, it, is that turn your Bible reading time into prayer. Because oftentimes if you're not reading, you're not praying. So why not just combine the two activities together? Or if you have been a student of reading the Bible for a long time, here's, I bet you, your biggest complaint. I read, I close it, and I forget what I read. Well, here's how to fix that. Pray the Bible. 
Take a psalm and turn it into a prayer. Take, take this, blessed is the man. God, I pray that, that I would be a blessed man, that I, that I would receive blessings from you, that I would see that genuine blessings come from you today. I pray my children would see that, that, that true happiness comes from holiness today, Father. That's my prayer for you. I'm telling you, we do that rightly. Um, this is sort of building off the work. If you want to jot this down, Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. It's about 60 pages long. It'll take you one afternoon to read, and, you can, and he will make you put it into practice as you're reading. I would encourage you. It's a little hardback, little tiny thing. Praying the Bible, Don Whitney. If you don't have it, get it. Fourthly, read the Bible in community. Read the Bible in community. I don't mean perhaps, you know, like in the streets out here. What I mean is, is that read it with other brothers and sisters. Read it with your spouse. Um, have your spouse keep you accountable to your reading. Uh, tell them, hey, I'm going to do this reading plan. Uh, have another brother. If you don't have a spouse, uh, have another brother in Christ or sister in Christ. Tell them, hey, I want to I want to become a student of God's word. I want to meditate on God's word. Will you keep me accountable to that? Can I, can, can I come to you whenever I sin and can I confess that whenever I fail in that plan? Do that. Read in community. Uh, grab a cup of coffee with a brother or sister in Christ during the week. Read God's word together. Do something in community. It will encourage your meditative time. It will grow your soul. So we saw first happy people or a happy person loves and obeys God's word. Secondly, we see that this contrasting fruit, contrasting fruit. And we're going to move through the rest of the psalm rather quickly. Contrasting fruit. What we see here is, is, is a contrasting between the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of wickedness. First, we see the fruit of righteousness. That is, the righteous are a fruit-bearing tree. The righteous are a fruit-bearing tree. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He's using here a simile, this, this imagery here of a tree planted by water, streams of water. And we all know that obviously trees that have water are going to flourish. And he's just flourishing, the sustaining. That, that, but one of the things we miss when we read that is the fact that he is planted. First we're going to see that he's planted, that God has planted him there. That when we spend time in God's word, we are planted by God to receive nutrients in his word. We see also that he's healthy and growing. He, he's bearing fruit. Look, if you've ever planted anything that's a fruit-bearing uh, plant, you know that just because it's a plant and it's a fruit plant does not necessarily mean it's going to bear fruit. Right? Sometimes you've got a dud, right? Uh, and, and in this case, there's no dud. It bears fruit. That, that the one who is going the way of righteousness is one who bears fruit fruit in their lives and whose leaf does not wither it speaks to health and vitality of the plant the plant is not succumb to disease or or scorching heat it rather is flourishing where everything else is dying brothers and sisters just a reminder you cannot bear fruit in your life without regular time with god you just can't i'm telling you it is impossible it is impossible to think that you can casually approach God and see fruit in your life. Rather, you must regularly abide in the vine and He will grow you. We see also the wicked men. So the wicked are not so. The wicked, the wicked aren't like that. The wicked are very different than that. He contrasts them. They're not, they're not like a tree, but, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. They're like... 
They're like wind-driven trash on trash day. You know, when, when the garbage man comes by and he doesn't get all the trash and the wind's blowing and there's trash everywhere all over your street. Well, that, he, that's what the wicked man is like. He's like trash littering the lawn. Just driven all over the place. He won't stand. There's nothing about him that's great. No fruit in his life. He, he's rather temporal. Perhaps this man has some sort of fruit, some sort of temporal fruitfulness in his life, but, but rather when the winds of life come, it, it drives it away. This is similar to what James tells us in James 1.9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun will rise with its scorching heat and wither the grass, and the flower will fall, and the beauty perish. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It's a reminder to us what will happen to wickedness in the end. That the wicked will be driven away. It's a reminder that the fruitfulness of holiness in our lives is better than the bitter fruit of wickedness. It reminds us in our lives where wickedness ultimately ends. So we see contrasting fruit. A, a happy person bears good fruit. And third and finally, contrasting end. We see a contrasting end. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked, those that seek the path of wickedness, the psalmist tells us will end with judgment by an eternal God. We cannot just sort of casually approach this text and not be fearful and tearful this morning. And to think, oh, you know, God's just so loving and so kind. He will not punish sin. Oh, brothers and sisters, let me remind you this morning that in verse 5, it is very clear, those who pursue wickedness will die. They will be judged. The Bible reminds us over and over that, that those who continue in unrepentant sin will perish. Those who pursue wickedness will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is a reminder, a warning to us this morning to get off that road and turn and go on the way of righteousness. It's a reminder to us this morning of where sin ultimately leads. It's a warning that there is a great divide among the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus promised that the sheep and the goats will be separated. That the sheep and the goats, yes, they might coexist for a time, but, but there's coming a day when, when the goats and the sheep will be separated and, and, and the wheat and the chaff will be separated and, and one will go, the sheep will go to eternal life and the goats to eternal death. But these warnings aren't only meant for our hearts, they're meant so that we will take these warnings to others as well. I wonder how often we lead our lives in such a way that, that we don't see the devastating paths of sin and unrighteousness and do nothing to call it out. We merely leave our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers to continue on the path of destruction. All the while we are singing, Jesus loves me. I'm going to heaven. I'm good. I'm happy. Brothers and sisters, this is a warning 
for our hearts, but also a message to take to others. The righteous we see end with a relationship with an eternal God. He says that the the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Again, this isn't just some sort of passive knowledge. Clearly, God knows the way, God knows knowledge of, about the wicked. God's not oblivious to wickedness. He knows about it. He knows knows all of us. This isn't just merely just sort of passing knowledge, just sort of like, oh, he just knows me. No, no. He knows you, knows you. (laughs) He knows everything about you. He knows you. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. There is this intimate knowledge of the righteous. Brother, sister, I wonder, friend. You consider this morning, as you were thinking about this text, as we were walking through this text, and you sort of thought, you know, I'm the blessed man. I'm the blessed person. It's me. I'm happy. Did you consider for a moment this morning that you're not the blessed man? That I'm not the blessed man? But rather, I am the wicked man. You are the wicked. Do you consider this morning that, no, that's not possible it's not possible for that. That's not me. No, that can't be me. Everything's going really well in my life. That just can't be it. Well, friends, you've missed the point of that psalm. And more importantly, you've missed Jesus in this psalm. The Bible tells us that this is who we are apart from Christ. That we are wicked. We are vile. That we once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. The Bible tells us that we, uh, we've gone on from, from bad to worse. Like We haven't gotten better, we've gotten actually worse. We were darkened in our understanding. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray by various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is what the Bible says each one of us are like. This is who we are apart from Jesus Christ. Friend, I just want to tell you this morning that Jesus is the only man that is truly blessed by God. Jesus is the only happy man of this psalm. He is the one who had perfect delight in God's law and in God's ways. He is the only one who perfectly obeyed His Father's will always pursuing God's glory over his own. He is the only one who perfectly fulfilled every dot, every iota of God's law. And some, he's the only one who truly delighted in the law of the Lord. Jesus fled in every way from the path of sin and wickedness. He was tempted to go down its path often in his life, yet he resisted at every turn, at every point he resisted he, he, he perfectly fled the counsel of wicked. He, he never mocked one of God's laws. Never once mocked one of God's people for their, their foolishness and their foolish lives or their foolish questions. All the while being mocked himself because of who he was and what he did. No, rather, Jesus became the mocked for the mocker. 
Jesus became the sinner for the sinner. Jesus became the one who took the counsel of the wicked for the ones who take the counsel of the wicked. And Jesus is the one who bore the wrath of God's judgment on the cross for sinners who deserved that wrath. Jesus became the sinner to be judged by God for our sin. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. He stood where we fall. He was cast out of the congregation of the righteous that we could be invited in. And He did it for His own glory. He perished so that we could live. And the call for you this morning is to repent. To turn off of the road of wickedness and go the way of righteousness. To trust in the blessed man. To trust in Christ, the Savior of your soul. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, Father, we truly want to be happy. And Father, my prayer this morning is that you would crush every idol in our hearts that tells us that happiness can be found in anything other than you. Father, my prayer is that we would find happiness in our pursuit of holiness. That we see first and foremost that our, our sin keeps us from genuine and true happiness. And that, the Father, that we would trust in your eternal Son who died for our sin that we might live in happiness and joy and delight. Father, we pray this morning that souls would be saved from your judgment through the blood of Christ today. We give you glory and praise and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we have the honor and privilege and